Welcome to the PPA Scotland Magazine Stories podcast. I am Laura Kelly Dunlop and I am a journalist and the business manager for PPA Scotland. We are the network for Scotland's professional publishers and the people behind the Edinburgh International Magazine Festival and the PPA Scottish Magazine Awards. For Magazine Stories, I interview some of the most interesting and talented people working in our industry. I'll be getting the inside track on their careers and how they got to where they are today. It's a chance to learn from some of the best in the business. For this edition, we're very lucky to be joined by multiple award-winning Mandy Rhodes, the Managing Director of Hollywood Communications and the editor of its flagship title, Hollywood Magazine. She'll be talking to us about what she's learned in more than 30 years in journalism across magazines, newspapers, television and radio broadcasting. Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, has described her as one of the best interviewers in the business. So I'm looking forward to turning the tables on her for this podcast. First of all, thank you for joining me online for our socially distanced edition of Magazine Stories, Mandy. Um, (laughs) Before we properly begin our regular interview, I want to take a moment to ask you about how the current coronavirus crisis is affecting work at Holyrood. Yeah, well, obviously, I'm sitting in an office just now that's completely empty. Um, I, for my own sanity, if you like, and because I'm a creature of habit and I'm a bit old, I suppose, I need the routine. So I'm getting up and running through Holyrood Park every morning down to our office, which is near the Scottish Parliament, coming in here and working from here. Uh, obviously a business that's completely based on relationships and um, how we interact with politicians in particular has been challenging when you're doing it all remotely. But people are really getting into the spirit. We've obviously had to postpone almost all of our events, indeed all of our events, and we're looking at putting some online. Um, I'm planning the editorial content for the magazines <clears throat> up to summer recess because we're going to continue publishing. People want to engage. They want to get the messages out. Um, we're doing interviews by uh, telephone mainly. Um, and I'm looking with the sales team really at working out editorial content that satisfies the readers, but also satisfies the commercial element of the publications. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, commercially, this is very difficult times, obviously, for for many, many publishers. I know that PPA, we've we've been doing survey and looking at how it's hitting people, especially with advertising. Mm -hmm. So that that has to be a a challenging conversation, a challenging environment for the salespeople as well. Yeah, I mean, I think in the kind of first two weeks of the lockdown, it was that we actually we put a magazine out that week. And um, commercially, the magazine still performed in the way that we had planned for. We put a magazine to print last Thursday and the revenue was you know, severely down. What mm. we're seeing now is that clients do really want to engage. They want to talk to the politicians. They're interested in less conventional advertising, but looking at things like um, thought leadership comment um, mm. or looking to engage in the editorial that we're already running, but they want to comment within those pieces. I'm really obviously having to just be very flexible about what we do, but maintaining the credibility and the integrity of the journalism. And obviously now politically holding the government to account is um, it's a very particular skill to be doing that in the middle of this crisis, because obviously we don't, uh, I think, have the same tolerance for people just sniping 
Um, not that I would say you would do that anyway, but um, but there is a kind of a, a tonal change, I think, in how we hold um, those in power the account during this time. Yeah, I mean, I think last week was a case in point with the departure of the chief medical officer. Uh, you know, there's a, a certain level of tolerance of we're all in this together and we're dealing with a crisis, but... Um, Really, the behaviour of the CMO, despite the fact that um, I, on a personal level, really like and respect her, um, it was just not on. And I think that mm. it was, um, I think the government was wanting in terms of the time it took for uh, Catherine Calderwood to go. And I think in normal circumstances that wouldn't have happened, but it becomes a different, a different level of decision making, I guess. Yeah, Absolutely. And I, I mean, I guess at the moment we're all having to show professional resilience um, as well as personal resilience in dealing with this crisis. And mm. um, thinking back on your career, do you think there are moments that um, have prepared you to, to be able to find that resilience? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, <laughs> I think this is um, just an extraordinary situation for everybody. And as an employer and as a journalist, I'm having to deal with different things. So, you know, I've got journalists who are all dealing with quite difficult personal issues. Um, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I've got staff dealing with quite difficult personal issues, you know, not being able to be with loved ones who are ill. Um, so as a boss, I'm trying to carry and cushion that for them while having the mm -hmm. same personal issues myself. Um, I think this is the, probably a time when I expose a bit of myself to my staff in a way that I haven't in the past, that mm. I've tried to protect them from things that I'm either going through or the business is going through. And this is a time for a bit more honesty. Mm. So, yeah, I'm probably letting my guard down a bit more than I normally would. Okay. Yeah, OK. That, I mean, that sounds like a, a um, I guess, treating people... Uh, as peers at this time is probably important. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are difficult decisions and we've had to furlough staff. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, I've also, you know, I had a member of staff that was brought in on the day of the lockdown um, who whose job was to be an events assistant. Well, we've oh, cancelled wow. all our events, but also it meant that she didn't um, qualify for fur paid furlough. Mm -hmm. So that's had to be, you know, a sensitive and humane conversation with her about, you know, we have no events, there is no work for you to do. And I have to say, I mean, people have surprised me in equal measure at being um, lovely and kind and tolerant and understanding. And also you've seen some of the worst in people too, not in staff, but in others outside, perhaps not understanding the situation that you're all going through. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, we are going to move on now from yeah. <laughs> from coronavirus. <laughs> Grim. I know, kind of. I mean, I have, do you know? I have to say, Laura, just coming out of it. I, you know, I think yeah. as well, people are pulling together, and I think there will be a different relationship with it work among people. I think there'll mm. be a better understanding of what everybody else does, and uh, it will be challenging. But I think we will um, we will build and continue to build the business. Yeah, that, well, that's a really positive um, way to look at it. And I think I, mean, I do actually think you're right. I think that um, I'm seeing a strengthening of people's relationships with each other 
because mm-hmm. we are, I mean, we're absolutely having to pull together. So yeah. <laughs> it's good to see that people are. Um, yeah, okay. So moving on from, from coronavirus, yeah. that, which um, seems to be taking up a lot of our lives at the moment, um, our normal conversations around uh, magazine stories are really about getting people the opportunity to understand how people will get to where they are in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go back and start right at the very beginning with yep. Um, yep. how you actually got your start. Well, I suppose and it depends, we're going back in eons of time, but um, <laughs> I suppose so. I always wanted to be a journalist, and um, that's a very easy thing to say, but not an easy thing to fulfil, especially mm. when you don't have people around you that were journalists. I was brought up in a small rural town in Perthshire, um, you know, saying to my parents that that's what I wanted to do just seemed a bit of a pipe dream, probably. Um, I wrote I mean just continued to write did things at at school and at university I wrote for the magazine at Stirling University and I also submitted articles wherever I could to various magazines when I was um, at uni as well I think actually Stuart Cosgrove probably gave me my first break I think it was was it would it have been NME or sounds can't remember now Um, but I wrote a couple of freelance pieces for him when I was at uni uh, I interviewed Zig Sputnik, which was interesting. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of coming to the end of uni, I applied to do um, the postgrad course at City University, which I didn't get into. I decided to give myself a year um, to see if I could either get onto a local newspaper. I knew always that it was about writing. It was about print. I didn't want, I didn't even consider I think radio or tv I just wanted Mm -hmm. to write and for me it was always about writing about people um understanding people I'd done um as part of my degree mainly because I didn't want to do a dissertation um, and as part of my joint honours degree I was offered a, a social work placement instead of doing a dissertation I did a <laughs> did a social work placement in um Perth um, in Hunter's Crescent, which is a big socially deprived um, housing estate. And it was kind of at the time when uh, drugs, glue sniffing in particular, was a big issue. And I, I guess I just knew it was those sort of social justice type issues that really fired me up. Um, so again, even though I was giving myself a year to get into something, I was sort of focused about the sort of journalist I wanted to be be mm. uh, and as luck would have it um there was jobs advertised in wester hales working in the community press at that time so um paid for by the U- ec at that point european community and it was about getting two women into journalism and two women into printing uh, we later yeah. discovered it was actually against the equality act um so i was probably probably an illegal trainee journalist but um a very highly paid one <laughs> as well because they were willing to pay quite a lot so i i got one of the jobs uh, as a trainee journalist in wester hales and they also paid for me to go to napier so it was a real proper indenture um and a very hard hitting training because going into wester hales in 1985 um, AIDS had just emerged. Uh, Wester Hales was almost the kind of um, the area where all of that was happening. Um, drug addiction was uh, at its height. 
Um, there was certainly no covering of um, flower festivals or um, mm. garden parties in Wester Hills. It was all heart hitting. However, there was also um, a philosophy by the paper in Wester Hills that we wouldn't cover court because otherwise the paper would have been full of court cases from Wester Hills. So it, we, weren't, uh, we weren't trying to create a positive image of what was going on, but we were trying to create a more realistic picture of the people that lived in Wester Hills. Mm. And I think what shaped me there was I would get papers like The Sun phoning up and saying, can you get us uh, an AIDS victim? Can you, you know, and it was just the language of how they talked about people that I was meeting every day. And I'm not trying to sound pious here, but I just didn't want to be that kind of tabloid journalist. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. The people for me weren't AIDS victims. It was, you know, Joe Bloggs, who I'd got to know. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I met a lot of really interesting professionals working in that field as well at that time. People that have carried me all the way through, you know, 30 years later, people I would still go back to, like Dr. Roy Robertson, who was working with people at that time. So I just met inspirational people. I also got to do some work in um, in Europe because I was being paid by the European Commission. Um, so I went to Munich and did some work around um, how people were sharing needles or not sharing needles in Munich. It was basically a comparative study of how drug addiction was developing in different parts of Europe. So that was fascinating. Indeed, yeah. And I mean, I think there's a lesson in there that um, you, that we can draw out about um, continuing to keep your contacts as well. Yeah, there's absolutely. There's people that have um, continued to be useful to you many years later. Yeah, and I, I do sound, I'm not being pious about this. It's about if you treated those people properly then, then they continue to want to speak to you now. Mm. And that, for me, was also quite important. I mean, actually, that was a lesson I think I got very early on at Napier and also working in the Sentinel in Wester Hills. Mel Young was my first editor who went on to launch a big issue in Scotland and the yep. Homeless World Cup. And Mel, in his very quiet way, was inspirational. And I think mm -hmm. that lesson of write stories, write what you like, but always feel you can go back and speak to that person, regardless mm -hmm. of what you've said about them. Um, that's always stayed with me, that as long as you've been honest about what you've said, you should always still be able to go back and speak to the person, whether you were exposing them for something or whatever. Um, that That's just something I still really believe in. You should never feel yeah. you've written a story and burnt all your boats. That's, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good advice indeed. I mean, what else did you learn though on the on the local newspaper? Because I think a lot of people do still start out on local papers, yeah. apart from the you know what you've been talking about already with the different people that you spoke to. Are there any particular skills that you think you came away with that have, have kind of had a lasting impact? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a fundamental believer in the foundations that you get from local newspapers, not least because you meet your your audience in the street and they'll tell you what they think of you. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I think is quite important. Um, these things are, you know, accuracy, getting names right, understanding um, where people's relationships sit in terms of where they live. Um, just that whole vibe of the lo locale and taking you back down to um, the roots of things 
I just mm-hmm. think it's about respect, I suppose, that, um, you know, some old lady that you're writing a story about is just as important as a politician, a prime minister or anybody else. Accuracy and their story matter. Mm, absolutely. And then you moved on to the Evening Times as well, which I would presume had many of the, the same um, the same issues that you were kind of dealing with and the same kind of lessons from there. Um, was there anything in particular there that, you know, that was that was different? Yeah, um, colleagues. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the Evening Times was a time I look back, well, I look back on all of, wherever I've worked fondly, but I would say the Evening Times was about having any of the rough edges uh, completely knocked off me. Um, it was quite a shock going from community, the community press, where I guess there was an ethos of... Um, Ooh, citizenship or being kind to people in a way mm-hmm. um, and going into the evening times which was a really it was it was absolutely about hard knocks and like you know the first day there the father of the chapel of the, so the father of the union put me up against a wall on the stairwell and said um, we don't expect a wee lassie from community press to be coming in here and telling us what to do ooh. and um, you know at that point, I was one of the few women in the newsroom. Um, you were having to deal with quite archaic attitudes to you. Um, it was a kind of sink or swim situation. You know, we, we still had an editor there at that point who would throw typewriters, though we had typewriters, would throw typewriters at people. Mm-hmm. It was a bit, it was an eye opener. Um, but it was also, I had a lot to learn and I learned a lot there. Uh, I learned about things that I didn't want to do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as a young woman reporter, I would tend to get thrown out on um, the knocks, which is basically going to someone's house in the morning because their child had been killed or whatever. And your main job of the day was to get a picture um, from a mother who was undoubtedly, you know, on tranquilizers at that point and grieving. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I didn't see the point of it. And I would go off and do it. And there was eventually a point where I just, I would just pretend I'd gone to the door and, do, and just not do it. I think a lot of people just didn't understand the point of that, really. There's an on, Well, there's an ongoing conversation there about the relationship between the press and your community. Yeah. I mean, having said that, Laura, you know, there was a, I was at the evening times when Piper Alpha blew mm-hmm. and actually going round the doors to speak to uh, the families of victims, there was almost a catharsis for people. So that there are occasions where you can see that it's necessary or you can see that it's important or you can see that that's what people expect. But I never really understood the point of going to the door of, you know, a mum that was grieving for a child um, that wasn't going to offer a lesson to other people, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, after that, you were on the, the launch team then for Scotland on Sunday, which, I mean, how did that come about? That must have been quite an exciting time. Yeah, it was. And I wasn't with the evening. I mean, I'm sounding a bit harsh about the evening times. I've made some long lasting friends from the evening times. And, you know, it was an amazing paper to work on at that time but I wasn't there for very long I was there for about 18 months and then um, Scotland on Sunday 
launched. Uh, basically, I just applied for a job. The other thing to say about the Evening Times was I understood very quickly that unless I tried to find a niche for myself, you'd be constantly um, just thrown out at anything um, and things that you perhaps found particularly as a woman. I mean, at one point I was asked if I would pose as um, an applicant as a pole dancer so we could do a story, um, oh, which wow. again, I, I refused to do. But, you know, as a woman at that point, and you've got to remember when it was, um, there were things you were being asked to do that were about you being a woman rather than being a good journalist. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, it, you know, it was an incredible learning experience. Anyway, the evening time, the Scotland Sunday was launching um, it sounded absolutely what I wanted to do. At, at the Evening Times, I've developed a niche around health reporting. Mm -hmm. And going into Scotland on Sunday, I knew that I should probably push myself into a particular area uh, if I wanted to do stories that I was interested in doing. Um, and people are never going to hand you stories. That's the other thing that you, I think you need to learn if you're going to be a news journalist, is that you need to create your own area of expertise um, mm. not wait for people just to hand you stories so at Scotland on Sunday I was the social affairs correspondent and I guess quite quick because I was always sure that I wanted to be hard news rather than soft features um, so I was doing a lot around prisons uh, particularly a lot around child abuse um, drugs uh, I like to say, don't like to say I did drugs, child abuse and prisons, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, it feels like it's a lot of heavy stuff to take on. Um, did that have a, a personal impact on you as well? Um, well, I guess everything does, but it, these are the areas that I just um, really... If everything that I do is around trying to understand what makes people tick and their motivations in life, those particular areas were just fascinating for me. I mean, mm -hmm. undoubtedly, there were stories that I was involved in that had a personal effect. In fact, recently I was asked, um, I was speaking at, for, to a group of journalists and they asked about stories where I'd ever felt in danger. And there's all yeah. there's kind of two that always just spring to mind. And one was uh, in Edinburgh, I was doing a big piece with um, prostitutes. And I'd, I, I guess I've always given a bit of myself because I feel I'm always asking people to give me a huge amount of them. So uh, I've never been a believer in you. There's a professional boundary and you don't cross it. Um, mm -hmm. that doesn't happen with me anyway I'd got to know one of the girls quite well and I'd gone to her flat um, just to continue a conversation that we were having to that I was going to use in the feature and her boyfriend or I think it was more likely at her pimp arrived back and he was so furious about me being there and furious about the idea that I might be questioning or raising questions for her about what she was doing with her life that mm. um, well yeah I thought he was probably going to kill me that was a, and he and I had to make a decision about leaving her in that situation but she was the one trying to get me out of the house so that's that still remains in my head I worry about what happened to her because I don't know um, yeah absolutely 
And again, another occasion was a really odd one. I was interviewing a young, I was doing a story, this is kind of early 90s, so it was still all the stuff I was doing on child sexual abuse was still quite new. And um, I was doing a piece about kids that abuse, sexually abuse other kids. And mm -hmm. a young boy in Acliffe, um, I can't remember if it was a listy school or whatever, anyway, an institution down in Acliffe who I went to interview. And he had raped a young girl of about four or five in Aberdeen and he was 10 or 11 and I'd been allowed in to talk to him which was mm -hmm. just incredible I always think everything's an incredible privilege but it is because you're trying to understand someone's motivations and you're given that passport to go in and interview them purely because you're yeah. a journalist anyway I was told you know he I was told a bit about um I was told you know he what he'd done um, I think he was about 16 by the time I was interviewing him and the officers there asked if they wanted if I needed them to come and sit in, in the interview and I said oh, that's fine absolutely fine and I walked in this little chap was I mean you know he looked about 10 and but he wasn't I think he was 16 yeah and I really did not want to show that I was scared of him um, and at one point he jumped up from the from his seat during the interview and I screamed and the officers came running in. And again, I felt I felt bad that I'd been frightened of this mm -hmm. young boy who was clearly damaged, but had done terrible things to other people. But in 30 odd years of journalism, it's just those two incidents that really stand out for me. To look on to you um, after Scotland on Sunday, yeah. um, there was a lot of television stuff that you did which I know you said you never particularly thought about yeah. broadcast so how why make that move how did it happen well so honestly um when I was at Scotland on Sunday I was very involved in the Orkney child abuse case mm -hmm. and that was a great I mean I'd been involved with the families before the children were taken into care and uh, for lots of reasons, which um, probably are a bit too complicated for what we're talking about just now. But basically, I was involved before the story broke. And then yeah. as the story broke, what started to bother me was that as a journalist, you were being asked to make a judgment about whether or not something like child abuse had happened or not. And that is not my job. It's not any journalist's job. But you you increasingly see that, um, that journalists are asked to make a judgment on things that they're absolutely not qualified to do yeah um, and I became increasingly unhappy about the way my editor wanted me to make judgment on that um, and I guess at the same time I'd been kind of um, I'd sold bits and pieces story-wise to Scottish television um, and I guess at a moment in time where I was feeling very unhappy about what the editor was asking me to do or not trusting my judgment in how I was handling the story. STV asked me if I'd be interested in going there to front um, a, tel a, a, program, a campaigning programme called Scottish Action, which, mm -hmm. you know, on, on paper for me, it was about campaigning for the underdog. It was exposing stories um, that might make a difference. So on paper, it sounded like the kind of thing I'd be interested in. Uh, and I went there and it was purely because I was just fed up with the, the way I felt a story was being treated. 
Mm-hmm. And it was fine, but I found myself continually walking around saying I used to be a sensible journalist or I used to be a serious journalist. And I, that sounds a bit high-handed as well, but I just wasn't doing the depth of stories that I involved, mm. that I, I enjoyed. And I didn't like being wheeled on to do pieces to camera and then wheeled off again. Yeah, just, yeah, for me, yeah. it just wasn't what I wanted to do and you know I think there's a possibility and in fact other journalists said that to me like Kay Adams and Kirsty Walk that had I done a different kind of program I may well have been satisfied and really enjoyed it Um, but I just it it wasn't for me there was I think the pinnacle of my career at Scottish television was I was filming or we were filming um, people allowing their dogs to defecate in parks but then not picking it up and then I would rush up and say you know so and so you've just we've just filmed you allowing your dog to poop in the park are you going to pick that up (laughs) which you know in Victoria Park you may well get um, a punch in the face Uh, (laughs) so (laughs) that was probably the pinnacle of my career that was that was a contract thing it was coming to an end anyway and the I went to the BBC to work on a new documentary series. It was it was supposed to be like a tartanized cutting edge, um, mm-hmm. fly on the wall type documentaries. So I was working as a researcher on that, um, and then doing some directing, and then directed on Yorpa, the Gaelic Current Affairs Programme, which was just absolutely fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. So for someone that said she didn't want to be involved in TV, then having a brief way can go to anywhere in Europe and talk about anything with anybody um, that is interesting, that was that was great. I then went, oh, I was then pregnant. <laughs> yes. I remember what I did. Um, <laughs> I was pregnant and moved to London because uh, my husband was already working down there. Mm-hmm. In fact, I moved to London the week before my son was born. Um, which was kind of, pl- <laughs> <time> then. <laughs> kind of planned, but um, he was a week early. Anyway, so I was still on maternity leave and in London, but it was obvious that I wasn't going to come back to Scotland because we mm-hmm. we based ourselves in London. I started doing some work for Channel 4 um, as uh, an assistant producer and looking through documentary proposals, um, etc. So... That I did that, and then when we moved back to Scotland, when my son was about three and a half, I started doing work again for BBC Scotland. I had a radio programme called Medical Matters with Mandy Rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed radio, but I still, you know, I just really missed print. And an opportunity came up to edit Holyrood magazine, um, which was all very convoluted. But anyway, um, I jumped to that because politics and journalism and print, it just had everything I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, and that's 15 years now you've, you've um, yeah. been at Hollywood, which is um, incredible. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that, so that's evolved. My role's evolved over time too. So basically, Hollywood, when I joined, was very much a, a, a kind of dry policy type magazine and it needed change. It it started when the magazine, when the Parliament started, but mm-hmm. hadn't. It had basically just followed the same pattern as a publication that is associated with Westminster called the House Magazine, which is actually now within the same fold as um, the the same stable as Holyrood. But um, mm-hmm. 
the, the owner at that time wanted it to be a piece of journalism, not just some kind of dry policy type document. That's why I was brought in and yeah. built up a team of journalists and think we've made it into something quite different, um, wins a lot of awards. It's it's a kind of cross between, I suppose, a kind of lifestyle political type magazine that also analyzes policy, but has humor, has big interviews with politicians and very much has a relationship with the politicians, which is sort of friendly fire. We're, mm-hmm. we're kind of theirs, but not quite theirs, if you like. Um, and I would have probably continued just continuing to be the editor, but became very much more involved in the business, was helping develop our policy events, um, which brings in the largest part of the revenue for the business. And then when we were taken over about seven years ago, I didn't really like being run from London and quite unwittingly talked myself into being the the managing director of Holyrood. So took over the running of the business and Mm -hmm. quite literally was just handed a calculator and a spreadsheet and told to get on with it. Um, So from someone that always (laughs) had been just involved in words and amassed in words, and in fact, I'd got a D and an E for economics and accountancy at my first year at university, which for some unknown reason I decided to study. Um, it was quite a baptism of fire. It certainly sounds like I was going to ask how you, I mean, as a kind of journalist and editor, I mean, traditionally, we're not all very well known for our amazing skills with spreadsheets. No. <laughs> so no, I mean, but, how did you go about acquiring those then? Um, but, you know. Well, I just kind of... Uh, bluffed my way through and actually realized that that's uh, what a lot of men just do anyway because it was mainly men around the the meeting tables whenever we were talking about money yeah and I think I, I bluffed a lot but I also wasn't unafraid of just saying I don't actually know what you're talking about and that's when you discover that most people around the table didn't know what they were talking about um and I still think you ask the daft lassie questions because if you don't ask them you're not going to know and you're not going to learn yeah so absolutely I think the main driving force for me of taking because I actually I love running the business now I mean and in fact it probably takes up so much more of my time than the direct journalism and being the editor but the main thing in this is that I love Holyrood with a passion so if anybody was going to run it it probably did have to be me. And that is what the chairman at the time said to me. Um, yeah. There was an obvious person to do it. I just needed to be able to feel confident about the skills, the business skills. And I still mm-hmm. don't feel hugely confident about them. But if you're driven by the fact that you want this to work, you'll find a way of making it work. You've mentioned your relationships and networking is obviously really, really key to yeah. your role but it's something lots and lots of people really hate. So I wonder, how do you um, network effectively? Um, I just love people, Laura. (laughs) You know, I'm just fascinated by... Do you know what, again, I know it's bringing it back to the time we're living in just now, but I, um, you know, I'll complain that I never get a minute to myself, that people are always wanting a bit of me. Um, I think more than anything, this lockdown process has made me understand how much I need other people to spark Mm. me or to get me thinking. Um, I absolutely need time on my own and I love solitude, but I love um, 
just love having to think about what makes people tick, what motivates people. You know, even when we're looking at that story of um, the other week with the chief medical officer, I'm always left with questions of what on earth, what on earth was someone thinking? What on earth in them um, made them think this was okay or not okay? Yes, uh, I'm always trying to understand that. Fascinated by politicians. Why would you put yourself in that position? Why would you allow the public to um, decide if you get this job or not? Uh, and it's hugely exposing. So for a lot yeah. of them, I just I've, I, it fascinates me, absolutely fascinates me. And in, t- in terms of the networking, I think um, you have to keep doing it. You can't just less, you know, rest on your laurels and think, well, people know you and that's all fine. Scotland's a really small place and trust's really important. Mm. Um, I somebody asked me the other week about big scoops I'd been involved in and. I said that one of probably one of the biggest so-called scoops was the piece that I did eventually with um, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, when she talked to me about her miscarriage. Yeah. Now, so I was criticised after that by, if you like, more conventional scoop-orientated uh, journalists who said they couldn't believe I'd sat on that knowledge for four years. So basically what had happened was I'd been having lunch with Nicola Sturgeon um, in the days when she still had the time to do those kind of things. And we had basically been having a conversation that was at cross purposes. I was talking about a friend or a mutual friend that had lost a baby. And I realized that she was talking about herself and she thought somehow I'd I knew that she'd had yeah. a miscarriage I didn't and we ended up talking a lot about that and over the years we talked a lot about that and I never considered coming back from that lunch and writing a gotcha story about the first minister who'd had a miscarriage mm-hmm. um, I just didn't even consider it a story to expose at that point yeah. and I think yeah. the two of us over the years talked quite a lot and eventually when all of the talk was about um there was a lot of talk about, oh, the First Minister is such a calculating person. She's even decided not to have children. Um, or there was all that uh, I'm a mother type narrative going on from down south during yeah, the leadership contest. Yeah. And I, I just said to Nicola Sturgeon at that point, you know, I feel if you talked about this now, you could do a lot of good because it's not about you particularly, but it is about just exposing what a lot of women are going through but feel they can't talk about so I really pushed her and persuaded her to do that but you know we were talking four or five years after the event um so I suppose when I'm talking about trust and stories you have to decide is it worth blowing my contact for one story right now or should I just wait and uh, there'll be a there'll be an appropriate moment and I probably Absolutely. sit on things more than I um, splash them, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also been, I mean, for all that uh, you're kind of uh, talking about your carefulness with, with people's relationships, you are known as being a, an outspoken and at times campaigning journalist. Mm. Um, I wonder across your career, have you seen a difference in how the public responds to commentators and the opinions that they might disagree with? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, 
you know, in re- I think definitely since since the independence referendum, and you know, from my point of view, that was an incredibly inspiring and um, fruitful time in terms of debate, and I found it an incredibly positive experience going through all of that. But I think the public, and I think it coincides with social media. And social mm. medias are really can be a really nasty place. Twitter can be a really nasty place. Yeah. Editors and journalists, commentators used to be more remote than they are now. So people think they know you. I mean, I tweet a lot of rubbish about things that I cook or things that um, I'm doing or about my son or whatever, it's intermingled with quite serious stuff. So and that, you know, people think they know you or they think they can judge your humour or and in fact they, they don't but it also means you're accessible so people can say whatever they like on social media and it's in mm. your house it's in your room it's wherever you're sitting with your ipad or whatever um i think that there was a uh, i hate to say because i think disrespect can be healthy but i think um a disrespect for experience, knowledge, journalistic skills crept in around yeah. the whole debate around the referendum and, and the use of social media that allowed people to do that. And there was also a point where everybody thinks they're a commentator as well. Yeah. Um, on particular subjects, I mean, you, you know that I have had a lot of abuse around the Gender Recognition Act. Um, yeah where people believe i mean i've had people quote things back at me that are my words that they've that they have then either misinterpreted or completely misquoted mm-hmm. and people believe they you have said things that you haven't um i i mean i found that i found that particular issue really really difficult um mm-hmm. you know for someone that spent a life campaigning as a journalist around things like equality to be called a bigot um to have my views just dismissed um i've I've found that quite painful Uh, or or even more recently i suppose you know my son was stuck in uh, colombia because he'd been traveling as part of a gap year and we were desperate to get him back as the lockdown came in because of the of covid and People started to criticise me on Twitter, making it into some kind of constitutional discussion, which was just bizarre. People need to take a good look at themselves. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably a good bit of advice. <laughs> I, I mean, to come back, um, I don't want to be com- uh, negative, but yeah. to come back about the positive things, I would like to know, I mean, that's obviously not one of the best things about working in magazines, yeah. but what what is the best thing for you about working in magazines? God, I know, the privilege, mm-hmm. the privilege of what we're allowed to do, um, that just never goes. And I, for all young journalists coming in, I'd love them to learn that, that this remains a privilege of a job. Uh, to, to, for people to allow you into their lives is, is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. And I still the excitement of putting a magazine to print on a Thursday night, that never leaves me. I love that. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely exhilarating. Yeah. And, you know, I think we just get to have the most interesting conversations. I mean, you know, we've got a job where we can come in and talk about politics and argue and 
analyse and, you know, have politicians dropping into the office as they walk along to the parliament. Uh, it's just um, an amazing job. Thank you for joining us for this edition of PPA Scotland Magazine Stories. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe at your podcast provider of choice. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Next week, we're going to be joined by Think's Executive Director, John Innes. An expert in membership publishing, he'll be telling us about working with the likes of Historic Scotland, the National Trust for Scotland and the Royal Photographic Society. I hope you'll join us then. I've been Laura Kelly Dunlop and this has been PPA Scotland Magazine Stories.